0: This is your favorite artist's favorite artist, where we explore the influences of well known creatives.
1: And we're on.
0: Okay, get all your wiggles out. Breathe deeply through your nose and your mouth. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Both at the same time?
0: We are talking about.
1: Maurizio Catalan.
0: Or, as you like to say,
1: Maurizio Catalan. <laughs> Maurizio.
0: Actually, a lot. You, see, you know how a lot of his interviews are in Italian? Uh-huh. Because I speak Spanish, there, I didn't realize how many similarities there are between Italian and Spanish.
1: You could probably pick it up pretty quick. We'll move to Venice or something.
0: Yeah. He'd like that. Yeah, it sounds nice. You said out of all the places you traveled to in Europe, you wouldn't mind living there.
1: Yeah, too many tourists. Though.
0: How might people have heard of Maurizio?
1: You may not know his name, but you have seen the banana. This last week at Art Basel Miami Beach, two editions of Maurizio's banana duct taped to a wall were sold to collectors for $120,000. Mm-hmm. Which people were totally outraged by, and it kind of took over the internet for about 24 hours there.
0: And there's there's a lot of people that are, like, taping bananas to their faces and stuff. Pretty good. Yeah. So, let's talk about how it was kind of tricky to do the research for this guy, because our last episode was all about Virgil Abloh, and there's a megaton...
1: All he does is talk on. <laughs> like, every day, he probably puts out more information about his influences or people who he's interested in or his process. He likes to show like half finished work all the time. Maurizio, he's like to have a certain level of mystery.
0: Yeah, he's very mysterious. And we looked for interviews. There's some interviews out there. We'll talk about whether or not we should believe anything we read in those interviews.
1: He has an Instagram. I've actually been following it for a couple of years now, but it's, I think it's called one post Instagram or something like that. And it's literally just one post.
0: Does it change? Like, does he post and then delete it and then has something else? That's the
1: thing is when I first saw it, I was like, "Uh, it's just this one post. I've seen it. There's no reason for me to follow. And then I go back again later and it's a different post. And I realized that he posts a different post every day.
0: Whoa. And then he deletes it.
1: Yeah. And he puts a new one on.
0: Oh. That's kind of cool. He
1: doesn't post anymore, though. He only has the one post right now. I think it's a cloud, the shape of a hand flipping you off or something. Classic. Like that. Yeah, very <laughs> Maurizio.
0: So for people who who don't know anything about him as a person, uh-huh. he was born in Italy in 1960. He now lives in New York City. The way he got his plane ticket to New York City was he asked 100 different people to donate $100. And And then he took this sum of money and he asked art students if they would. He said, you can have this money if you promise not to make any art for the next year. And none of them took him up on it.
1: Right. (laughs) And so
0: he, he used the money that he had raised and bought a ticket to New York City to move there.
1: Yeah, the name of his foundation that he created or his his grant or whatever it may be was named after uh, an old Russian story of a man who was extremely lazy. And so Maurizio is making this point that artists, sometimes great art, is made out of laziness or interesting things are created out of laziness. So like most of his work has a lot to do with being lazy. Yeah. (laughs)
0: In one of the interviews I read, <clears throat> the interviewer asked him, how would you describe your style or how would people closest to you describe your style? And his response was one word, lazy.
1: That makes very much sense. Like a banana duct taped to a wall, for example. I mean, this should come as no surprise. Also, the price should come as no surprise. 120000 is actually a, a steal for a Maurizio piece. So they actually um, got a pretty good deal.
0: Because he's one of the top most expensive European artists. Really? Living European artists right now. Hmm.
1: Well, yeah, so people shouldn't be surprised. If they've seen his work, like, this should be nothing. And so it's kind of funny that it blew up the way that it did because he's been making work like this forever. In fact, other artists, I would say this, this work is, not only is it not groundbreaking, it's not even noteworthy.
0: Well, and I think that's why it, it blew up in the news is because it's this, it's his stupidest piece. <laughs> like Out of a lot of his artwork, everything that he... He's shown in galleries and events Mm. and museums. It's his laziest piece.
1: One of his first shows he ever did, his first solo show that he did, he put up a sign that said, Be Right Back.
0: Oh, that's true.
1: And then he left. And, and he never came back. And he never came back, and that was his piece. So everyone showed up to his show, and there was nothing in the gallery.
0: That's true. And then another time, he, oh, where was it where he just sold his space to an advertiser?
1: It was at the Venice Biennale. He yeah. got invited to the Venice Biennale.
0: But he sold his space in the Venice Biennale to uh, a perf- an, ad- yeah. Uh, yeah,
1: an advertisement for a perfume. So yeah. there's a billboard space there.
0: And it's just a huge billboard up above an entryway. Yeah. Room
1: so to say that a banana duct tape to the wall is lazy piece that's true. that's probably that's you're right in fact he had a work of art that was he created his own biennale actually so there's many biennales right he created one of his own and it was somewhere by the beach and he invited tons of really popular famous artists and writers and critics and etc they showed up and there was no art and it was all just a giant party
0: oh my gosh
1: yeah so he created this biennale but it was an exploration quote unquote it was this exploration of everything that is part of a biennale except for the artwork so that's kind of what the work was Mm. was it was him being like what is a biennale besides the art and so he found out it's just a bunch of drinking and swimming on the beach yeah
0: Huh. Well, he's definitely a comedian. Mm-hmm. Which I think is um, the point of a lot of the conversations we want to have.
1: Right, as the piece was named, comedian. But, um, one. Ba-dum-ba-dum. In an article by Jason Farrago in the New York Times, he discusses the uh, banana, and basically, he has the same opinion. That I do, <gasps> yes, about the the man who ate the banana. Oh, okay. He says, for when it comes to the banana's ontological status as art or produce, I thought we had settled this already. <laughs> if you buy a light work by Dan Flavin and the fluorescent bulb starts flickering, you can replace it with a new one. If you buy a solo wall drawing and you move house, you can erase the old one and draw a new one. A banana, even more than a light fixture, has always going to require a replacement. Mr. Catalan has already drawn up instructions for the lucky collectors to replace the fruit every week or 10 days. Everybody changes flowers regularly. So it doesn't even matter if the guy ate it because you just replace it. Which makes the work even more worthless.
0: And frustrating. You know, you think about the Pinocchio piece where it floats in water. Uh It's like, well, naturally, if someone buys that or, you know, it's on display somewhere else, they're going to drain the water, have new water. They're going to clean that water, whatever. No one really cares, you know, Mm -hmm. even though the water is part of the piece. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But when it's the banana, everyone has their panties in a
1: lot about it <laughs> <laughs> right because there's no part of the sculpture whatsoever which i mean the
0: duct tape but hey the duct tape is probably it's gonna
1: go bad yeah the duct tape is gonna go bad so there's no part of that sculpture itself that actually is the physical object that must be kept
0: so if you replace the banana and you replace the duct tape then really the only thing that makes it Maurizio's piece is that someone bought
1: it Yeah, that's what someone so silly. bought
0: the idea <laughs>
1: No, what what makes it his is probably becomes it, because it comes with some type of certificate of authenticity oh. which gives you the authority to sh- to display the work as his
0: So you're probably really like and if you know, if the people who bought it want to have it on display in a gallery or a museum, they're pr- they probably just have to show that certificate because they can't really just show
1: right the piece. Which any any artwork that can be made out of just like regular household objects, mm-hmm. you know, should be made. I think like if you like if you really love Dan Flavin's light sculptures, you should just buy a light and put it in your room, and you have a Dan Flavin light sculpture. Mm-hmm. If you really really love Catalan's um, banana sculpture, you won't get the certificate. Understandably, that means your, your piece may not be as great as someone else's because they have the certificate. But you know what? For $120,000 saved in your pocket, I think it's okay for you to just take a banana, duct tape it to the wall, and say this is your exact replica. In fact, it's not even a replica. It is your exact work of art.
0: While you were talking, I was thinking would I want to tape a banana to my wall? And I thought, not really. But then I thought, who would I buy it from where I would actually want to do that? There'd be publicity, or at least when friends came over, I'd say, this is who I bought it from. And I was like, I don't really know because I don't really have like a lot of like celebrity crushes or, well, maybe Jane Goodall.
1: point that you're making is that Art objects now are basically merchandise or uh, relics of a specific person. Mm-hmm. So because the uh, the physical object doesn't matter, all that matters is that it's part of a certain history that you have an affinity to, which happens to be like Jane Goodall. You could say that Jane Goodall got this banana from a monkey in Africa somewhere or whatever. Well,
0: that's what's funny is like Jane Goodall is actually one of the only people that I'm like... Well, wow, what? I I kind of want her autograph. You know, I'm sure people have tried to like sell Justin Bieber's hair from his hairbrush, right. like on eBay I or something. You it has it's been like, sold. So I it's it's like I I wouldn't want to buy anyone's hair. You know.
1: Right. So people who don't understand art collectors, that means they shouldn't be able to understand. I guarantee you, some Pokemon card is probably sold for as much as that banana taped to the wall. Right. Really. It, Probably, I don't know. I don't
0: know Pokemon <laughs> very
1: well. <laughs> I'll bet, I'll bet, I'll bet there has been a Pokemon card sold for tens of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true, but I'm guessing so. Uh, and if not, some stupid Star Wars uh, figurine <laughs> or something like that, right? Yeah. So
0: uh, <laughs> this is clearly not the cover, the area we cover. <laughs> yeah, we
1: don't know that much about that kind of stuff, but we are our own type of nerds, which is art nerds, and so. Uh, The reason why someone would pay for a certificate so that they could officially display a banana in their home is, I suppose, the same reason why a collector would want a guitar that, you know, that John Lennon used Mm -hmm. in one of his performances or a a rare Pokemon or something stupid like that. Mm -hmm. They're all just objects. People are collectors. And if they have money, they're going to buy things that they're obsessed with, especially things that they feel like are historically important enough that they will hold their value over time.
0: Mm-hmm. In the interview with Numero, the interviewer asked him about context, and this is what Maurizio said. The context of a work is part of its meaning, as much as is the point of view, cultural, psychological, social, of the onlooker. Art is a territory that everyone has the skills to explore, because no alphabet is involved but at the same time, no one will get the same sensations and experience as his or her traveling companions. It's the reign of subjective interpretation. My favorite part is when he says art is a territory that everyone has the skills to explore. You know, it's like you can travel the world and look at art everywhere.
1: Mm-hmm. One more thing on that piece. Like I say, it's not very noteworthy, but since people are talking about it, I might as well mention. Mm -hmm. One of the people who purchased the artwork, it's a woman, Sarah Andelman. And she's actually the founder of Colette, which is a really popular shop in Paris, which is now closed. Mm. But she's always been a part of collaborating with different artists. Every single week, she would change her window display. And so that gave an opportunity for tons of Different artists to get involved in her shop to do different Mm -hmm. collaborations. I think that was pretty cool.
0: Oh. So he
1: sold two versions of the banana. With duct tape.
0: And a, an artist ate one of the bananas, right? Right. But I, which artist was that? Do you know? Do you remember? He
1: is not an artist worth talking about.
0: <laughs> oh, poor guy.
1: <laughs> That's really what I think. I don't want to do him, not that anyone even listens to our podcast, <laughs> but if they did, you know, I wouldn't want to give him any hype. Because, yeah, he ate the banana and that was funny. That's the best thing I've seen him do. Because I look (laughs) at the rest of his artwork and it's just kind of like flashy, weird, Warhol, Damien Hirst knockoff type stuff. So,
0: yeah. Billy and Beatrice Cox live in Mm -hmm. Miami, Florida. They released a statement to page six Mm
1: -hmm.
0: in regards to the work that they purchased. They called it the unicorn of the art world.
1: The unicorn? (laughs) Oh my gosh.
0: And then they compared it to Andy Warhol's iconic 1962 Campbell's soup cans. Hmm. It says they intend to loan and eventually donate the artwork to a museum.
1: Warhol also did the famous Velvet Underground album cover, which is a banana. So I like to think Mm. that... Mm -hmm. The piece by Maurizio was a specific reference to Warhol, which I know he has mentioned as one of his influences. Yeah.
0: So we can talk about Andy Warhol first. It's interesting because we had trouble kind of finding people that Maurizio...
1: Mentioned as influences. Yeah, exactly.
0: And so Andy Warhol is one of the few people that he mentions. Yeah, that he explicitly
1: mentions. Yeah. Many of his artworks, it's very obvious that where he's getting his references from but he may not state it himself but he has specifically mentioned Warhol being an uh, an inspiration but we
0: don't really know if it was Maurizio that mentioned Warhol because Maurizio has kind of copied something that Andy Warhol was known for which Warhol hired a friend to
1: Impersonate him. Impersonate
0: him. For interviews. Mm -hmm. And Maurizio does that as well. In tons of interviews, lectures, um, public appearances, it's not actually Catalan.
1: Massimiliano Gianni. Yeah. <laughs> so he
0: has Gianni show up for not just like little hole in the wall magazine interviews, but like television appearances
1: and mm-hmm. university lectures.
0: There's, in the documentary watch, there's like one old man who's like yelling at this huge like lecture <laughs> hall of people. And it's after he found out about this impersonation, he's like, I take back everything I said.
1: Yeah, because apparently he'd spent like the first half of the time that Maurizio, quote Uh unquote, was there just like praising him. And then once he realizes this is Massimiliano Gianni, he's just like, I take it all back. You're a fraud and you've you've insulted our entire establishment. Mm -hmm. So I think in some ways he is a prankster, but I'll also make the argument that in many ways... He's more of a jokester than a prankster, Mm -hmm. but we'll get into that later. I have so much to say about this guy. I didn't think I would have anything to say. Well, and
0: just talking about like, okay, well, what difference does it make if it's him or if it's not him? I'm going to reference an interview with Numero quite a few times. But the interviewer asked, what's the artist's role to challenge authority in society to reveal hidden truths? And Maurizio said... The duty of art is to ask questions, not to provide answers. And if you want a clear answer, then you're in the wrong place. A book or a magazine or a movie, they're like a Rorschach test. What you see is your inner and unsayable ego. They reflect with extreme precision who you are more than who the artist is. Close quote. The question was about the role of an artist. Right. And so I thought I would bring in...
1: I guess that would be why Maurizio doesn't talk about his art as much because he doesn't necessarily want to explain it because it doesn't really give any answers anyways.
0: So I think he's decided, I don't care if someone else answers these questions interviewers are asking. Mm -hmm. Because he doesn't feel like it's his duty or obligation to go and explain his artwork or explain his philosophies and thoughts.
1: And I think someone who would be perfect to explain his work, perhaps better than he can himself, is Massimiliano Gianni. Because Gianni is someone who has worked for Flash Art Magazine an establishment that Maurizio earlier in his career actually bought several of their magazines placed an image of his artwork on the magazine and then put those magazines back in shops for people to purchase somehow anyway Gianni was part of that magazine and of course that got the magazine's attention Mm -hmm. so he went to go interview Catalan and then the first time they met I believe Catalan they hit it off Yeah, they said I
0: want you to be me for the rest of my life
1: yeah pretty much and apparently Gianni was paid very well f- for doing that
0: that's not a bad job yeah man say whatever make money you don't have to make any Be art. popular <laughs> except everyone thinks you're someone
1: else <laughs> Yeah. Gianni is not only an art writer and interviewer he's also a curator and establisher of several uh, galleries himself so uh he's a good person to have pretend to be you if you're an artist and you want to look smart
0: yeah Likeable.
1: Yeah. Gianni mentioned something about Warhol one time where he was saying he was asking himself, is Warhol saying that commercialism is bad or is he saying that it's good? Is this commercialism and pop art, is it bad or is it good? What are you trying to say with this work? And then eventually he realized that that's not necessarily so important in order to understand art and that if you do away with things like the aesthetic of the work and even trying to decide whether something is bad or good, that's not necessarily what the artwork has to do. People pay so much for the work is really the part that infuriates everyone, I think. if, if Well, like,
0: if, if someone bought a banana taped to the wall for a dollar, like, it wouldn't really be on the news.
1: But as soon as someone pays that much for it, the only, it's funny, infuriating. Thing, yeah, the only funny thing about it is that someone's stupid enough to pay for it.
0: <laughs> and there's so much student debt out there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think Bernie Sanders or someone said, like, uh, he even tweeted about it. He was like, (laughs) yeah, he was like, oh, we don't have to worry about student debt now. We just give everyone a banana. (laughs) So Warhol.
0: Born in Pittsburgh in 1928. He died in New York in 1987. He had some childhood illnesses Mm -hmm. that... Caused school to be very difficult for him because he had like spasms in his arms he also had really big mood swings so he was taken out of school spent a lot of time just in bed just like staring at objects and so his mom noticed his talent for drawing and so she enrolled him in some art classes at the Carnegie School of Art Um, and that's where he ended up going to school after he graduated high school And then he began his work as a magazine and ad illustrator. Just to put into perspective, some of his more famous pieces, 1962, Campbell's Soup Cans, 1963, Triple Elvis, 1964, The Shop Maryland's, The Brillo Soap Pad Boxes. And that was kind of his style, what he was known for. There is an interview where Catalan brings up Annie Warhol, so I thought I would just read that. Maurizio said... What I realized at the time was that there are three different kinds of revolutionaries. Those who want to change things, those who are into the fight but couldn't care less if things change or not, and those who work following their instinct, responding to a situation in a personal way that can end up having collective results and that can affect the world a lot more. The last model is possibly the one I'm interested in most. Look at Gerhard Richter or Andy Warhol. Warhol was proof that you can be revolutionary without being militant. In the long run, he was more revolutionary than a lot of artists who were openly championing the same values that he was incorporating into his work. In Warhol's work, serial repetition acts as a depowering or destabilizing force. He knew that believing in art as a society-changing weapon can be detrimental. There must be more to it than that. It has to be sensual or witty or visually appearing. The worst possible thing is when ideological art becomes didactic. What you get as a result is a little more than propaganda, and then it doesn't matter which side of the barricade you're on. End quote. So that was kind of a long quote, but I wanted to read it because I feel like that statement describes why. So
1: So he says that Warhol is a revolutionary because, because he follows his instincts.
0: And he believed that art is a weapon that can change society. But that also, you know, it's more than that. It's also visually appealing, or it's also witty or sensual.
1: What do you think that Maurizio learned from Warhol?
0: That's a really good question. But uh, there hasn't been a lot of food art, so... (laughs)
1: Tomato soup, (laughs) now bananas.
0: I'm going to turn that question right back to you, Joe.
1: If you look at a single work of art by Maurizio Catalan, you may see it as random, pointless, lazy, meaningless. And that may be true. (laughs) Wow,
0: sounds like you could keep
1: going. (laughs) I could. I could keep going.
0: Okay, now we know how you feel about it.
1: (laughs) But if you look at his body of work altogether, you really start to understand that his work is driving toward a couple interesting points. He's really asking specific questions, mostly about death, but also about other things like work, value, aesthetics, taste.
0: You know, a lot of people don't know what his other artwork is because he just kind of popped up out of the blue. So maybe we take this opportunity to kind of share some of his other more popular pieces. A lot of his artwork includes the subject of people hanging. One of his pieces was creating three life size children and hanging them with rope around their neck from a tree in a square in Milan.
1: Right. That one seemed extremely, so intentionally provocative. Yeah. For public work. Because, like, you could have something like that in a gallery and you're like, okay, people, dead people in a tree. But when you put it as a as a work of public sculpture that's asking for provocation... Like, it?
0: where people just walk by and stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. It's actually really sad. A man put a ladder against the tree, climbed up, and was cutting down the children. Like, he cut the first one down and the second one, and then he lost his balance before he cut the third child down. And they, like, had to call an ambulance, and um, <laughs> Maurizio had to... <laughs> <And> <laughs> don't they- laugh at this it's story! It's funny. And then Maurizio had to, like you know talk to the police about it and the and they they asked the man who was cutting it down why he did it and he said he was doing it for the children yeah but well, it was like defacement of defacement property
1: of a million dollar work of art yeah probably.
0: but he's done some other hanging people he's done a dead horse that's kind of drooping is the yeah. best way i can describe hanging from it from the ceiling yep
1: which involves a horse, is uh, a piece called The Ballad of Trotsky. So this intermediate horse was presented to the public during Catalan's first solo exhibition in New York. And it shows a horse suspended in midair. So it's kind of like hanging, drooping down, hanging. And the title references a Russian revolutionary named Leon Trotsky, who was an influential figure in the Bolshevik Revolution and the Soviet Union. Trotsky had to flee to Mexico City to escape Stalin in the 20s, where he was actually murdered by a devout communist. Obviously, Catalan has... He has something else going on. He has a lot of these ideas... About death and politics and tragedy that are all part of his work. I think he sees a lot of his sculptures of dead hanging animals as like somehow his interpretations of actual real life tragedies that he interprets in his own way.
0: It's interesting you bring that up because he has several different political pieces. Another one he has, the piece is placed so this figure is facing the wall and from the back it looks like a little boy and then when you see the face it's actually Adolf Hitler. In this, like, little little boy's body, but then, like, this grown man's head with the mustache and everything.
1: Yeah, it's quite disturbing. And it's
0: interesting hearing the person who bought this piece and had it in their house, and they said that their seven-year-old daughter didn't know who Hitler was yet. But she just, when she saw it, she just thought it was the creepiest thing ever. But there, in a, an interview, Catalan was asked, how about your sculptures of John F. Kennedy or Adolf Hitler? Aren't these works plainly political? And Catalan said, what I'm interested in are images. I'm sure you can tell. Who in his right mind would deliberately represent the Pope struck by a meteorite in order to deliver a political message about the church or a hooded kid nailed to a school desk? It takes a very deviated and imaginative mind. Say, Roger Waters, in his the wall period to conceive something like that as a critique of the educational system so as this mentioned he also has john f kennedy in a casket he also has another piece where it's like a school a schoolboy with a hood on and he's sitting at a desk and his hands the palms of his hands are on the desk in front of him and then pencils are going through the middle of his hands oh my like um like jesus crucifixion yeah So it's kind of interesting because he does have a lot of these very political pieces.
1: Yeah, he has Um, another dead horse, for example. It's called Jesus the Nazarene King of the Jews. mm -hmm. So I think he picks something, like an image that he sees in his mind that represents how he feels to explore a specific idea, real circumstances.
0: He has another one where it's a life-size Pinocchio that's put face down in a like a little pool Mm -hmm. and Catalan was once asked about these motifs the interviewer said is art a way for you to exercise your fear of death and Maurizio said I guess it's more fear of love and the interviewer says while some people still see your works as jokes or as commedia dell'arte (laughs) The tragedy aspect is prominent. Why is life such a tragedy to you? Are you more desperate or melancholic? And he responded, It's a common misunderstanding with writers. Not everything they write comes from real life, and it's not strictly autobiographical. The same is true for me. To answer the last part of your question, I would go for melancholic. I don't feel I'm desperate, and I tend to flee tragedies, usually via the emergency exit. So there's a little glimpse into his life and what he's thinking what is your favorite piece by murcio catalan
1: well it just depends you know <laughs> like
0: dang i should have known you're gonna say that
1: <laughs> his horse sculptures like the horses that are like jumping into the wall and they're or and their uh heads are missing and they're like mm-hmm. halfway into the wall basically and they're like hanging there Those are some of the first ones that I recognized as his, and I think that they're really interesting and fun to look at. Hmm. But uh, to think about, I would say I really liked his piece where he stole another artist's work uh, (laughs) and put it in his gallery. So he literally went to another gallery, broke in. He stole all of the work from another artist, and he put it in his own exhibit and called it another effing ready-made.
0: Classic. That's funny you say that the horses are like hanging because or like jumping into the wall because in my mind i see it you know like um hunters how they put the heads on the wall Mm -hmm. i think of it as like okay if the head's coming out one side of the wall and it looks like how everyone does it with their little hunting trophies Mm -hmm. what would the body look like if it was going through the wall and on the other side so that's kind of how i depicted it
1: wow yeah that's so true
0: The piece is five brownish horses hanging in the wall and it's called Kaput and that is the title of a novel by Curzio Malaparte. The book is all about a thousand horses that jumped into a lake to escape a wildfire during World War II and as the horses were moving across the lake it froze And so it trapped all the horses in the positions that they were in. So their heads were above the frozen water and their eyes were open. And so Catalan was trying to kind of recreate that image of these horses in frozen water using taxidermy.
1: Right. So like their heads are frozen into the wall and they're just trapped there. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's another one of these, these strange um, taxidermied creatures giving off, like, this sense of, like, energy and, like, death and all these things. So these pieces, the the fact that they're taxidermied animals and that they explore death kind of reminds me of uh, Damien Hirst.
0: Yeah, that's very true. You should ask me what my favorite piece is.
1: What's your favorite work of art?
0: <laughs> it's the little squirrel.
1: Oh yes, that's Or is it a mouse? It's a squirrel. It's a
0: squirrel. It's this little squirrel, this taxidermied squirrel, who's sitting at a yellow kitchen table. There's like a gun on the floor, and he's like slouched over, like he just killed himself. Mm -hmm. And it's this cute little kitchen setup, and this cute little squirrel, and it's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. I have, I get more emotion out of that piece than any of his other pieces <laughs> and most pieces in the art world
1: because it's also cute and funny too. it's
0: cute it's funny it's tragic um his uh Maurizio's sister said that he created the piece a few weeks after they had a phone call where they just kind of casually not casually talked about death and life and suicide and suicide and Um, His sister also said that the table that the squirrel is at weirdly reminds her of their childhood table.
1: Humor is sometimes thought of in the art world as not serious, which I guess by definition is it isn't serious. But you can still talk about serious things with humor. You can take someone's jokes seriously, I guess you can Mm -hmm. say. And it's a very difficult uh, emotion to pull out of people is, is... i guess joy laughter humor so it's i feel like they're just as valid in fact perhaps even more difficult to create those emotions in people than something like shock for example
0: we were on a walk on saturday and on the sidewalk what did we see do you remember that outside your boxing gym i almost
1: stepped on a dead squirrel
0: yeah there was a dead squirrel it looked so peaceful But it was really sad, also alarming. You told me that, you know, to make me feel better, you told me it's always there. It just likes to nap there. (laughs) But I think about how freaking funny that suicidal squirrel is. It's pretty good. And so I'm like, think about all the dead squirrels that could be taxidermied and made into, like, Hilarious art pieces.
1: I think every dead squirrel <laughs> should become a sculpture.
0: I do too. All these dead squirrel bodies just going to waste. It
1: really? I is mean, a waste. they
0: probably help the environment, you know. But
1: what a shame.
0: That's what I think about.
1: <laughs> art is easy, man. Art is stupid, and don't don't say you know is it is it art? Okay, because that's a stupid question. Maybe ask is it. Is it good art? You know, that's maybe a more interesting question, but I think uh, that's not the main question that Maurizio is interested in. So, um, but he's like Warhol where he's kind of, you know, he he glorifies the profane, the silly. He glorifies those things. He doesn't bother to decide whether things are right or wrong sometimes.
0: Yeah, but I think, like, it is a really important thing to get his opinion on because, like, think about it. We we saw those horses those five horses hanging from the wall we had no idea there was a whole story behind it right or like for example he made one piece where um it's a woman it's a it's called trophy wife mm-hmm. and he made it because someone commissioned him to make a painting of his of um this person's wife And when he was meeting with the person that was commissioning him to do the piece, he walked in his house and just saw all sorts of animals because the guy was a hunter. Mm -hmm. Then he just thought, well, naturally, I'll just make a trophy wife. I'll make a sculpture of his wife that can go on his wall with all his animals. And so it's like, you know, when people see that in the Guggenheim or something, they don't know the story behind it.
1: Right, that's true. I guess there really is... uh... Context is important for him, uh, but he doesn't give it a lot of the time. I guess where he shows the work is, is context and th- the names. So
0: Andy Warhol, where do you see the greatest similarities between the work of Catalan and Warhol?
1: I think the level of casual intuition that they follow, which incites rage. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's part of it. The fact that his his presence and the way he chooses to live his life like for example partying like creating a biennale Mm -hmm. where basically everyone just parties that's one of those things where it's like intuitively it's everything that art should not be right but also he's following his intuition and that's what it's led him to do you know and that's what kind of leads a lot of people to become artists is not because they're lazy, per se, but because they they want to just follow these, these crazy ideas that they have to their completion. And I think that's what Warhol did, and that's what Catalan does.
0: Remember the quote I read about Catalan explaining revolutionaries? Yeah. He also briefly mentioned Gerhard Richter. He doesn't talk about him anywhere else in interviews or anything that I was able to find— But because he brought it up in an interview, it makes me think that, you know, he's at least a little bit inspired by Mm -hmm. him. So I thought I would just put it out there who this guy is and then we'll move on. Okay. He was born in Germany in 1932. He's still alive. He's 87 years old. He studied art in Dresden, then moved to Dusseldorf and worked as a photo lab technician. His first solo show was in 1963. In 1972, he was chosen to represent Germany in the Venice Biennale. He's known for his photographs, glass pieces, and photo painting style. So we were at the SF MoMA. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple months ago, and we saw a bunch of Richter stuff, and it was that style of like it looks like a painting, it looks like a photograph. It's yeah,
1: but they're much more, more beautiful than your conventional photorealist painting because That's they're kind true. of they're slightly out of focus. It has like this beautiful fuzzy f- Hazy. feeling. yeah, it's, it's yeah. really cool, and the lighting is always beautiful. And uh, you know, most photorealist paintings, of course, are you know, kind of like just people showing off their skill level, but Richters, I think, are just. Uh, really interesting
0: yeah he does a lot of glass pieces that are just kind of like um an exploration of colors Mm -hmm. pretty neutral glass pieces what i
1: generally kind of know him for i guess is he has these big paintings of these big giant canvases and he puts paint on them and then he uses like what looks like a trowel or like a giant piece of uh, just a two by four or something, and he slides it across his paintings over and over again. And then he adds more paint and then he slides these things across the paintings until it kind of becomes this big layered mess of kind so of. So it
0: like shows a lot of movement and colors. I like them. Do you like yeah, them?
1: Yeah, I mean, I like them. They're easy to like, but mm-hmm. um, I, I never really go deep with them. Yeah, they're kind of okay. But, I mean, I haven't seen a lot of them in person, and I think I can really be convinced that they're amazing Mm -hmm. if I were to spend some time with them.
0: Yeah. So, both Richter and Catalan were in the top 10 most expensive living European artists. I think it was in 2015 is when I read that statistic. Also, fun story, Gerhard Richter threw away a bunch of designs in, like, a trash can outside his studio. And a passerby went through his trash, and found a bunch of postcard-sized sketches, and he tried to sell them to people. And some people were up for paying 60,000 euros.
1: 60,000 euros for a little sketch of a painting.
0: hmm It says Richter was asked to go to the district court to testify as a witness in a case against the thief. Wow. A lot of people kept sketches that you threw away when you were in second grade, Joe. Right,
1: and I would go to court.
0: And so what would happen? You know, they're holding on to those for the day that you're famous. Those
1: are still not going to be worth anything. <laughs> but, I mean, I would pay a lot for a sketch from a certain artist. In fact, I think that's a really affordable way to get into collecting is maybe work by sketches, by drawings instead of paintings. In a lot of ways, the drawings are sometimes just as beautiful, like a like a little drawing by uh, by Basquiat mm-hmm. or, or any number of artists. Matisse. Yeah, you know? Yeah. Those are sometimes just as good as their paintings. It's true. I was talking about uh, Massimiliano Gianni. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> how he he's the guy who kind of pretended to be Maurizio sometimes. Also, he founded a gallery with, with Maurizio. In 2002, he co-founded a gallery called The Wrong Gallery, and they looked for a bunch of different places to put this gallery. Initially, they were thinking of putting a refrigerator in an empty lot.
0: No way. Yeah, and then <laughs> the
1: inside of the refrigerator would be the art gallery. That's
0: genius.
1: Yeah, it is genius.
0: He'd open it up. You yeah,
1: know? and they'd just be there, and so you could look inside, and that would be the tiniest little gallery ever.
0: That is genius. Yeah whoa we should do that we should like sell little tiny um refrigerators and Uh call them like have a cool name for a little art gallery (laughs) and then people can buy them and put them in their salon t-shirt shop printmaking studio wow
1: you just totally corporatized (laughs) a good idea uh that didn't end up working out because apparently it's illegal just to leave a refrigerator out in public in New York because they're afraid that a child would get inside and get trapped. Really? <laughs> yeah. So uh, they didn't end up doing that. So they kept looking around. They're like, hmm, we don't really want to pay for a real space here in New York. It's expensive, but we want to do something kind of fun. They realized there's another gallery nearby, and they have the a little doorway. Where there was no door, I guess. I don't An know. entryway. An entryway, yeah. <laughs> right? It was about 2.5 square feet where just that little entryway was. Mm-hmm. And they just decided to get your standard glass and aluminum gallery door and build it into the entryway. Wow. So it was just that little space where it was like a door entryway. That became the gallery. Wow. Yeah, so they created this little gallery. They, uh... Had it there for several years, I guess. And they had a bunch of really fun exhibitions. And what ended up happening is the gallery space was so small that most of the exhibits were about the gallery door because you could hardly fit anything into the gallery. Huh. So all the artists that they invited somehow found a way to make artwork out of the out of that gallery entrance because that's essentially all they have to work with. Huh. A Polish artist who was involved... I don't know how to say his name properly. I'm sorry, I didn't look this up ahead of time, but it's Paweł Althamer. Okay, so Paweł <laughs> um is actually a, apparently an extremely popular artist in Europe, but he wasn't really getting very much representation here in the U.S. Maurizio and uh, Gianni decided that they wanted to give this guy a little bit of representation. What this artist did is he hired two Polish illegal immigrants to come and smash the gallery door at Wrong Gallery with a baseball bat every Saturday. (laughs) No way! (laughs) Yeah, so it's some type of performance that has to do with making commentary on hiring people of illegal immigration and kind of like... That's hilarious. And him being a Polish person, you know. And so it has something to do with kind of like this sense of kind of like communal violence that exists within yeah. uh, you know kind of like immigrant communities in new york or something like that i think it's really amazing and uh Maurizio was is quoted as saying i think we had to change four or five doors in total uh it was a really good way to keep the window clean
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's what we should do instead of cleaning our car yeah, I just buy a new car i wish but this powell Artist. He was born in Poland in 1967. He's known for his sculptures and video art.
1: I was viewing a, a body of work of his where he took volunteers' faces of people who visited the gallery, and then he molded their faces and he turned them into different sculptures.
0: Whoa. A lot of his sculptures, they're, they're human figures.
1: Mm-hmm human figure.
0: <laughs> another one of the Polish artists featured in the Ron Gallery is Jamie Eisenstein. She was born in Poland in 1975. She does a lot of sculptures as well. I like the one where she turns a chair into a human. So it just has like human legs coming out of it and human arms coming out of it. She has another one where it's like a wig on display. And then there's like a fan on the ground,
1: <laughs> so it's kind of like <laughs> always like this perpetual hair blowing in the wind sculpture.
0: Yeah, so she, I like her sculptures a lot. I yeah, think, they're so funny. I think there's a con- you know there's more of a connection uh, between Jamie's work and Maurizio's than Maurizio's and a lot of other artists' work.
1: Big time, and I think especially with the piece that she did for the Wrong Gallery, I think it was definitely an homage. To earlier works of Catalan.
0: What piece did she do for being featured in the wrong Gallery?
1: So she displayed a sign that said, instead of, like, so Catalan, one of his first solo exhibitions, what he did is he said, uh, be right back. Right. He put a sign up. But what she did is she put a sign that says, will return by, and then it has a little clock showing when she will return. But... It, the clock was motorized so that the clock was always pointed a quarter of an hour into the future. Oh, no. So if you saw the clock and you looked at it, it wasn't going to be moving on you. So you would leave and you'd come back again in a quarter of an hour and it, it will would have, have moved a quarter of an hour oh my into gosh. the future. So it will always be 15 minutes ahead. So uh, The
0: DMV should just put that up on the Yeah, <laughs>
1: always. So what all these artists have in common is that they like to... Have a good time. Party! They like to joke around. <laughs> and if they don't like any of those things, at least they like to make extremely explicit artwork. <laughs>
0: I was wondering what you were going to say.
1: <laughs> yeah, this next artist we're bringing up is Marilyn Minter. She makes these insane. Yeah, yes, she
0: is risque.
1: She is risque. But they are insane paintings, huh? Aren't yeah, they? Yeah, like, they are. Very impressive. Very beautiful.
0: She was born in Louisiana in 1948.
1: She makes these really close, cropped up paintings of body parts, usually pressed against hot, steamy glass with water coming down the glass window.
0: Like tongues and lips and eyes.
1: Yeah, and they're usually extremely saturated and erotic. <laughs> yeah, really cool, though. I so would, wait, so I wait. Would, where... The lighting is kind of insane on some of these paintings. I would... I like the sparkly
0: turquoise eyeshadow in yeah, one of them very cool my question is where is the connection between this artist and catalan did he mention her at some point
1: after the wrong gallery closed down him and ali subotnik Massimiliano gianni they him and Maurizio, they all got together and they started a new space called family business Now, Family Business is another gallery where they weren't necessarily interested in selling artwork, but they were interested in doing these installations or displays and giving perhaps lesser-known artists a chance to display their work alongside other...
0: We're all about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) alongside more well-known artists. Now, Marilyn Minter, she's a well-known artist very successful, but she was given opportunities to be involved at Family Business Gallery and helped curate the show and was asked to invite other artists to join in. And one of the artists that apparently she got involved was Hennessy Youngman. Real name is Jason Musson. And he was involved in some shows at the Family Business Gallery. He was born in the Bronx in uh, 1977, so he's kind of a younger artist. And his work has to do with uh, comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has to do with, as usual, it has to do with joking around.
0: He created these video series titled Art Thoughts with the oh, Z at the end. They're pretty
1: funny, actually. Yeah.
0: And he created this... Character named Hennessy Youngman, and so the the character in these the video series is Hennessy, but the guy's real name is Jason Musson.
1: And it's Hennessy Youngman. Youngman. No, Youngman. Youngman. <laughs> Young man.
0: <laughs> da, 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 da,
1: da, da. <laughs> Young man. Da, 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 so, da, da, da.
0: Jason got a BFA in photography at the University of the Arts. Then he went to the Stuart Weitzman School of Design and he got an MFA in painting at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also part of a rap group called Plastic Little.
1: I first heard of Hennessy Youngman from Tom Sachs. He mentioned him on his Instagram a couple years ago. Did
0: he mention Hennessy or did he mention Jason? Hennessy. Interesting.
1: Art thoughts is what he meant.
0: Okay, so he was kind of referring to art thoughts. So
1: Yeah, uh, art thoughts is kind of the Hennessy Youngman thing.
0: Well, he was creating a gallery, and he wrote the funniest thing as kind of like a call to people to bring their artwork to his gallery. And I'm beeping out a lot of the cuss words, but he said, anyone, and I mean anyone, bring their artwork down. Bring the beep family couch. He said... Bring big-ass paintings, little-ass paintings, things you painted in 1998, which is as ugly as Beep. You got big-ass sculpture. You want to show that won't fit through the door. Bring it down, and we'll just cut that Beep in half and reattach (laughs) it when it's back inside.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This dude is hilarious. I have watched all of his uh, art thoughts.
0: If we we ever open a gallery, I think we should reuse what he said.
1: Yeah, that's pretty good. To
0: artists that we invite. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Sorry, what he's saying, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, How to all, put that that golden thought out there?
1: Yes. What he does is like they're being kind of populist. They they talk, they act, they think like the rest like the rest of the actual world does. You know, think about it. Michelangelo painted pictures of Christ because the people who paid him for his artwork and the people who patronized his 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 business were the wealthy religious people shortly after it became the mercantile community and so what was popular is paintings uh still lives you know pictures of moments in the home what i'm trying to say is that we live in a world where everyone has access to all culture and there's no point in trying to put on this weird facade anymore it's just talking in the language of the people which is you know talking in jokes and maybe kind of breaking down the the final barriers between Actual, real life culture and conversation, and whatever it is we call art that sits in a gallery.
0: We're getting to the end of the podcast. Couple people just want to bring up Dominique gonzalez Forrester. She was born in France in 1965. She's known for her video work, photography, installations. She has won the Marcel Duchamp Prize. She created an installation called TH2058, where she used Felix, which is a sculpture by Maurizio. It's a huge... Skeleton. She used that as part of her installation that also included an enormous spider and some other things on display. So they have collaborated.
1: That's such an interesting idea that instead of being like Maurizio and saying, oh, I'm taking your sculpture and it's my sculpture now, or instead of the idea of saying, I'm an artist who wants to curate a show of sculptures by different artists. Instead, she takes these giant public sculptures, basically like these giant sculptures that people could basically walk underneath and put them so close together that they don't feel like they're separate. They feel like they're part of an, it's inst- a really cool an idea. installation. You know, so she creates this giant environment, like this huge environment that you can walk through and walk under or around this post-apocalyptic world where each of these sculptures are kind of these giant looming sculptures. Maurizio is being this giant cat skeleton. And it's just a really cool idea of how to kind of Recontextualize those objects by actually turning a giant sculpture into an even more giant installation that you can walk through.
0: Yeah, that's a neat point.
1: And I think she was also, I could be wrong, but I think she may have also been involved in the publication of a magazine. She <laughs> may have been involved, I'm not certain, but with the magazine called Permanent Food. But I know that someone that was definitely involved was Paola Manfren. And she is the creative director of image engineering.
0: I think. I was trying to do research on her, but she has, like, nothing. She has very little out there. Mm -hmm. And um, the percentage of it that's in English is even
1: smaller. Yes.
0: So don't know too much about her, but I do know that she published a magazine along with Maurizio titled Permanent Food. It's um 192 pages of what I believe is just a lot of images. You can buy it on Amazon. It was a collaboration. Oh, yeah, here. It was a collaboration from 1996 to 2007 with Dominique Gonzalez Foster and Paola Manfrin. Yeah. It's a journal with just a bunch of different material yeah
1: it seemed pretty random he also collaborated on a satirical art journal called charlie which uh gianni was also involved in and each edition of the magazine was supposed to be kind of like the pilot edition the brand new edition of a magazine that's supposed to be different from all the other charlie magazines so it's just kind of like filled with randomness and uh, it's just kind of strange work for example uh man if you look at her instagram All it is basically is just like penis memes and stuff like that. So it's kind of funny that these people all work together and they're like in like their forties and they're very... I
0: know Joe walked in the room like yesterday and he's like, okay, I've been doing lots of research for the podcast. Basically what I've learned is that Maurizio just has a bunch of immature friends and that's who he spends all his time with.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, he's he's living it up. He's living young. Maybe it's just part of his uh, persona. But uh, I really, I think he's probably a funny guy. I'd like to go. Uh...
0: He seems kind of serious in interviews and stuff. When it's like actually, it, he kind of he's like. I think he's really tall. I don't know. Maybe it's just, yeah. He's tall. I think he's tall. In my head, he's tall, and he's kind of serious. And he walks around and just like
1: half of his art is about death, anyway. Yeah,
0: but it's funny because I feel like he would be a like a jokester.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think he can joke when the time comes, and I'd love to sit down and have a plate of spaghetti with him one day.
0: <laughs> Get high on carbs and then see what he says. Mhm.
1: <laughs> That's what I need right now.
0: (laughs) Are you hungry? Yes. Well, do you have anyone else you want to mention? Nope. I think we covered it all.
1: Okay, let's go get some food.
0: Okay. Bye. (laughs) Bye.